Hey, this is Matt Markin, and welcome to episode 41 of the Adventures in Advising podcast. If you don't already, subscribe to this podcast on your favorite podcast platform and stay up to date by following us on social media, TikTok, Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook at Advising Podcast and YouTube at Adventures in Advising. Without further ado, here's episode 41. Hello and welcome to episode 41 of Adventures in Advising. It's our 16th episode of 2021 and we have a couple of fantastic interviews for you to enjoy. Yes, coming up shortly, we have interviews with Sarah Howard from The Ohio State University and Ebony Staten from CareerVillage.org, as well as what's new for interviews on Dane's Desk on our YouTube channel. Speaking of YouTube, thanks to Gail Carlin, for their comment on episode nine of Dane's Desk with Jackie Graves, Gail wrote about the interview, you are so right when you say you don't have to be a super expert in everything to help other advisors. Being involved in different advising groups in addition to Nakata is so helpful in making connections and increasing your advising skills. Also to Kathy Stockwell, who wrote on Instagram, I absolutely love all you guys have done for the advising profession. Thank you for making it so easy for us to learn from each other. Congrats to Jonathan Hallford from Auburn University, who received Regions 4 Joy C. Jackson Service Award. Jonathan was a guest with us back on episode 18, Adjusting to New Realities. Coming up now, it's Sarah Howard from The Ohio State University. Sarah Howard is a senior academic advisor in the Central Support for Academic Advising Office at The Ohio State University, responsible for developing training and professional development opportunities for more than 250 professional advisors across six campuses and for managing two substitute or float pool advisors for a pilot project. She works remotely even prior to the global pandemic for Ohio State from over 700 miles away from the Columbus campus. Prior to this role, Sarah advised undecided exploring students and students pursuing STEM majors for over 10 years at Ohio State and the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill. She earned a BA in English and a BS in mathematics from Ashland University and completed her MA in college student personnel from Bowling Green State University. Within Nakata, Sarah has served as chair of the technology and advising community, appointed member and chair of the technology advisory board, appointed member of the webinar advisory board and publications advisory board, steering committee member for the advising communities division and mentor for the emerging leaders program. As a co-founder of the Academic Advising Chat on Twitter, Sarah believes strongly in the relational power of technology and social media. Mrs. Howard has contributed conference presentations about technology and training-related subjects at regional and annual Nakata conferences throughout the past decade, and is co-authoring a chapter about technology and training for the upcoming third edition of the Nakata Advisor Training and Development book. Aside from her job duties and Nakata roles, Sarah enjoys adventuring and exploring the outdoors with her husband and three children. Sarah, welcome to the podcast. Thanks so much for having me. Well, we're delighted to get the opportunity to to chat to you. And uh, as Matt has outlined in your impressive bio, we will have lots to uh, chat about today, I'm certain. But 
one of the things we like to do, Sarah, is to give our listeners the opportunity to kind of get to know you a little bit. And that will happen throughout the course of the interview. But we always like to begin with what Kevin Thomas dubbed the origin story. So we'd love to, to hear about, you know, how you found yourself working um, in academic advising and found yourself working where you are today. Sure. I'd love to share that. Um, education has always been kind of in my path. Um, when I had the opportunity in middle and high school to do any career shadowing or career exploration opportunities, I would shadow people like my elementary music teacher or um, a middle school guidance counselor that I knew. Or uh, my junior year in high school, I had an opportunity to do a year-long internship with a teacher. And so when I got to college, I was headed down that path. I thought I was going to teach middle school math. Um, and in the state of Ohio, you choose two licensure areas for middle grades. So I picked English and mathematics because those were subjects that I enjoyed. Um, what I found in my first semester classes is that I was not so much interested in spending all of my time learning about pedagogy and um learning how to use the tools of uh, technology for teaching. And so I switched my major to English and math. I figured I like these subjects. I'll continue to learn about them. But my thought at the time was, oh, I'll just get my master's degree and teaching certification after graduation. Um, so fast forward, I was super involved in uh, orientation. I worked in our college writing center. I was involved in um, some religious life organizations, other student groups, a leadership living learning program. Um, you could find me in my junior year um, here, there, and everywhere, in addition to taking more credit hours than I should have any given semester. Um, but I started talking with the woman who coordinated orientation on our campus and came to realize that while education wasn't necessarily what I thought I wanted to do anymore, I didn't see myself in that classroom setting. Um, higher education was actually an opportunity. And it's one of those situations, I'm sure a lot of advisors have this um, experience that you don't really know about the field of advising until you're in college. Like people don't grow up being like, I want to be an academic advisor. I mean, maybe eventually they'll meet cool people like us and they'll want to do that. But for most folks, that's just not the case. And so um, I started exploring graduate programs at the beginning of my senior year. I applied to several within the state of Ohio um, and found myself uh, going to Bowling Green State University. My graduate assistantship was in an office working with undecided students, and I had just some fantastic supervisors and mentors in that office who really gave me a firm foundation in why students need advising, what it's like to work with undecided or exploratory students. Um, I had a really diverse caseload of students who had varied experiences from what I had seen at my small private liberal arts school. And so um, I really just fell in love with the problem solving, the the life teaching aspect of advising. Um, and so I knew when I was approaching graduation that advising was primarily the place that I was going to be job searching. Um, and after a long search that felt like it never was going to end, I did finally um, end up with an offer for a position at the University of North Carolina. So packed up and moved there and um, had some great colleagues and a lot of great learning experiences in that first position. Um, after a few years there, decided to move back closer to family. Um, I'm from Central Ohio, and so um, started applying for other positions and found myself back at the one of the regional campuses of Ohio State. Um, Ohio State, 
contrary to most people's understanding, is not just the main um, football hub in central Ohio. There are actually um, six or five different smaller campuses spread throughout the state that really serve as the open access um, kind of arm of the institution. And so I worked at one of those smaller campuses about 40 miles east of the Columbus campus, um, where students typically spend a year or maybe two um, we do offer completion of some of the four-year degrees at those regional campuses, but a lot of those students then transition to Columbus campus. And that just provides a whole other set of transitions and connections to resources. So that was a great opportunity to learn and grow. Um, had an opportunity to join a team with the Undecided and Exploratory Unit. Those students are near and dear to my heart. And so I jumped at the chance. Um, it was a really rock star kind of team. I had some great colleagues there. Um, and then when my family was um, presented with an opportunity to move to the Upper Peninsula of Michigan, I tossed a pie in the sky idea at my supervisor and said, I know there's all these projects related to advising um, they were working to centralize some of the initial training and onboarding process for new advisors. Um, and she uh, got funding and approval for a part-time position. So I work 20 hours a week um, from very far away from the Columbus campus. And um, it's great. I get to interact with all those people that I had developed relationships when I was on campus. But I also get to really kind of make a big impact on the way that we're setting the tone for the advising community at our campus, as well as making sure that advisors are equipped with the tools and the trainings um, and the opportunities that they need to be happy, successful um, professionals who can really make an impact for students. Yeah, well, I'm already learning already because I didn't know there was the multiple campuses. I thought it was just the one. But I'm glad that you talked about problem solving, being a problem solver and life teaching. Yeah, I mean, that definitely defines being an academic advisor. And now that you are in this position, um, you know, you were actually in this remote position even before the, the global pandemic. And so I'm sure you had others reaching out to you when the pandemic was becoming more real in the sense of like, we might actually be working remote for the foreseeable future. What kind of advice were you were you able to give during that time with people like, shifting gears at working remote and still trying to help their students? Stay with us. We'll be right back. Cracking the college admissions code just got easier. I'm Rebecca Gordon, your go-to fictional college admissions counselor for the rich and famous. Tune into The Admissions Game, Satire Edition, and uncover my top secrets for sure-fire Ivy League admission. Ditch the old Photoshop your face onto a water polo hunk trick. We reveal all the latest loopholes. So laugh and learn with The Admissions Game wherever you podcast. Sure. Um, so I remember I woke up on Tuesday, uh, no, Monday, March 9th, and was watching some national news broadcast. They were showing a clip of all of the institutions across the country that had already announced that they would be um, transitioning to remote uh, school for at least a period of time. And I saw my institution on the list and it was like, oh, I must have missed an email late last night. Um, <laughs> I woke up 
I kind of got myself going. Um, I knew we had an academic advising chat um, scheduled on Twitter that Tuesday afternoon. And so what we decided to do kind of in um, taking the lead from some of the teaching folks who had uh, started a Google document, um, we started a Google Doc about advising during times of disruption. And within that next kind of 48 hours, that link was shared thousands of times. We had, like at any one given time, people couldn't even get on the document to add anything because there were just so many people trying to view it. <laughs> um, but we were providing guidance about, you know, how do you make sure that you have all the tools that you need? The the laptop, the, you know, the processor, the webcam, this, that, and the other, what tools are available um, for cloud-based saving of documents. If you're kind of packing up for this disaster that we all knew was coming within a couple of days, how do we kind of quickly transition? So we started out with very like tangible things. Here's the technology things you need to consider. Um, here are things related to addressing student needs. But then we also started thinking about, well, what if this goes on for longer than just a couple of weeks that most institutions were planning at the time? Um, so we started thinking about, well, what about end of term processing? Is there going to be an additional way to think about um, petitions, you know, this was a, a big disruption in everyone's life. So we kind of anticipated, would you be expecting more petitions to come in? How do you plan for graduation clearance and students who might um, be taking incompletes because they were just so disrupted? Um, what about orientation? Like what already exists in these online spaces? So we really use that document um, to start the conversation for thousands of advisors across, I don't even know how many campuses, um, both in the US and abroad. And it was wild. I never in my life thought that that document would get that much traction. But the number of people who reached out directly to me and just said, thank you so much. This has been really helpful. Like my administration isn't thinking about any of these things. And so just at least having a starting point has been really great. Um, it's just... I was glad to have been in that position to have kind of already gone through that transition myself uh, 18 months prior when we moved and then to be in the position to be forward thinking and kind of in a non-reactive space for my own self, which allowed other people to be reactive in the ways that they needed to be to make that transition. I don't know that before that kind of March 10th, March 13th timeframe that anybody would have thought that advising could be done solely remotely. Um, I know that there were pockets here and there, you know, at some online institutions, but um, the resiliency of advising communities across the world and just the tools that have been available to make advisors accessible um, really has, I think, been a a great benefit to students um, everywhere this year. Absolutely. I think resiliency is, is a, a great word, but I think, I mean, that document is incredibly comprehensive and, and offers kind of just a, almost a step-by-step -step guide. So wherever somebody, whatever they were kind of along their planning process, they were able to get something from it. And I suppose I'm interested, Sarah, in even taking you back a little bit further in terms of your kind of interest in 
kind of technology, social media, and utilizing that in an advising space? Where where did maybe it even goes back further to just your interest in social media and technology? Where did that come about? Like, and how did you decide to utilize it in in terms of advising? Sure. Um, so I would say uh, Facebook came about when I was a senior in college. So it was this new novel thing. Um, and as I was entering graduate school, it was a way in which I was able to keep it in touch with some of my friends, my uh, extended family who lived out of state. Um, Twitter then kind of came shortly there on the heels. And I was in my first professional role when Twitter kind of uh, was unveiled. I joined Twitter sometime in April of like 2009, roughly. Um, So I've been on Twitter for a super long time, but I started following people that were really, uh, were working in higher education in various roles. Um, And eventually there were some of us who were interested in advising, who kind of found each other in this space. And we started experimenting with the academic advising hashtag, which at the time when Twitter was only 140 characters, when you're typing out academic advising, that takes up a whole lot of space. So we pretty quickly um, worked to narrow that down and started using um, hashtag ACADV, so for short for academic advising. Um, and at the 2010 conference in uh, Nakata conference in Orlando, Florida, Several of us ahead of that who had met on Twitter said, hey, I'm going to the conference. Are you going to the conference? You're going to the conference too. So we arranged the first ever Nakata tweet up. There were 10 of us who gathered in um, a small little bar area in one of the hotels. And it was the first time that we had really met one another in person. It seems super weird that you would get all these people together. It's like, okay, fine. You know, technology is kind of related here. Um, But what I found as an introvert, I had been to an Akata conference when I was a graduate student. And I was so overwhelmed because there were so many people. There were so many sessions. I still was figuring out what is an advisor and is this what I want to do? And so then for me to return to a Nakata conference having this already set group of people who I kind of already knew just felt so much more comfortable. I didn't have to make the small talk. I didn't have to be like, so how are the sessions that you went to today? Like we could, I already knew a little bit about their lives. I knew about their work situations. I knew um, about these people and it just was great to be able to kind of start the conversation um, at point uh, step three, I guess, rather than starting all the way at step zero or step one. And From that, uh, we started having more conversations about, wouldn't it be great if we could continue these conversations um, beyond the conference? So for me, technology was not just, oh, I'm on Twitter for Twitter's sake. It was about the relationships that I was able to build with colleagues who understood the work that I was doing, but had different perspectives and different contexts to be able to um, support or challenge or provide different ideas to me. And so we started the academic advising Twitter chat. Um, It was Tuesday evenings, I believe, around eight o'clock central time. Um, And every week we would meet online, we would have these conversations. Um, We had a rotating group of moderators. And surprisingly, uh, 10 years later, we are still doing this Twitter chat. 
and people have come and gone. We've rotated through a variety of sets of moderators as people have um, moved into corporate roles or at different institutions where maybe they don't have enough uh, as much flexibility with their daily schedule. Um, but it's been a great way to invite others into the conversation, to provide a sounding board for people who maybe don't have a lot of colleagues who really understand their work at their own institution, um, who maybe are looking for different ideas about how they might try something. Um, it's a great, great resource. Um, and then when we get together at conferences, it's like, oh, how have things been? And you can just catch up and it's not like you haven't seen one another in 11 and a half months it's this conversation just keeps going and it's all facilitated through through technology stay with us we'll be right back you love listening to podcasts but have you ever thought about starting your own podcast maybe you want to build a brand grow your business or are looking for an excuse to talk about your favorite hobby whatever your reason for making a podcast buzzsprout is the place to start Since 2009, Buzzsprout has helped over 300,000 people launch their own podcasts. Buzzsprout walks you step-by-step through the whole process and will give you powerful tools to start, grow, and monetize your podcast. Ready to get started? Click the link in the show notes to get our free step-by-step guide to starting your podcast today. You were mentioning how you you came with the question of, well, wouldn't it be great if? And sometimes people ask that question and it ends with that question and you've been able to kind of run with it and you know a decade later and and it's still going which is which is really amazing I have to shout out Laura Pasquini for that because she's like, so she was very involved in Nakata at the time and she was like a major go-getter. Um, and that was something that she's like, yes, let's do this. And so she kind of got the ball rolling and kept kept the energy up and just brought on a great team of folks. So um, it's been, it, it wouldn't necessarily have moved much further past the what if, um, if Laura wasn't behind that. But she's also who pulled me in um, to get involved in Nakata in the first place. Um, she was the chair of the technology commission at the time um, and said, hey, we need some steering committee members. I think you would be great. Come on board. And so, I mean, I owe a lot to her, um, her mentorship, her friendship, um, and just her her attitude to just try stuff. Get it off the ground. Just try it. Oh, yeah, definitely. And, you know, maybe we'll go go with that because, you know, you're talking about, you know, someone that was a mentor to you and you've actually been able to also in Akata be part of the Emerging Leaders Program um, as a mentor. Talk to, talk to us about uh, your decision to be part of that and, you know, who was your mentee? <laughs> sure. Um, I will say that I was an ELP reject at first. Um, I applied as a mentee myself uh, in about 2012, I believe it was. And I recall distinctly getting an email message from Lee Cunningham after I had submitted my materials. And she said, Sarah, thank you so much for, I mean, Lee is just so wonderful, uh, but thank you so much for applying. I really feel like you have more experience already in Nakata and the mentee role just isn't necessarily right for you. And I just felt like, Oh no, <laughs> what if I can, I had applied for this. I put together all my materials. And so then about two years later, longer than that in 2017, um, I had applied 
to be a mentor, um, kind of at Lee's nudging again, like she said, you know, you've had all these other experiences. I really think it would be great to add you as a mentor. And I had a lot of doubt <laughs> from that experience because I was like, a couple years ago, I didn't have, I had more than enough experience to be a mentee, but now you're saying that I have enough experience to be a mentor? Like, how does this? But it was fine. Um, my mentee, the person I was paired with, um, was Dominique Carter from North Carolina State University. Um, we really hit it off. Our styles really worked well together. Um, she's got a great counseling background and is working on her um, PhD in counseling. Um, and so we had a lot of great conversations about supporting students in crisis, um, helping support students who maybe um, are kind of flagged from an academic standpoint because they're not performing well. Um, how do you support them? Um, and she has some experience working at some other institutions and with student athletes that really kind of was beneficial for me to learn about as well. Um, so yeah, we had a, a great two years. Uh, we didn't get to celebrate the conclusion of our class in Puerto Rico, which is the one disappointment uh, that I share from the ELP program, but um, it was a great program. And even the other people in our 2018 to 2020 class, it was great to get to know a lot of them too, both the other mentors and the emerging leaders. Yeah, and I think perseverance there in, in terms of, you know, it, it all worked out. And look at you, you you didn't end up being a mentee, but being a, a fantastic mentor. And whilst Puerto Rico didn't happen in person, but it was a, a great kind of online experience, um, Cincinnati is, is coming up annual this year. And you have uh, a number of, of presentations. Um, could you give us uh, maybe a, a sneak peek or a preview about uh, what you'll be presenting on um, at the upcoming annual? Sure. Absolutely. Um, so one of the topics that I will be presenting on, I actually had uh, done the same presentation at the Region 3 and 5 Regional Conference in April. Um, it's about um, being prepared for emergency and disaster response. So kind of drawing on my experience in developing this kind of comprehensive document at the beginning of the pandemic, um, I have worked at an, in a number of positions um, and at two very large institutions where things happen, um, whether that's on an individual level, whether that's being a weather emergency, um, whether that is uh, a campus crisis. And so um, I kind of put together my thoughts about that. And now is really a great time for folks to be thinking about how are they prepared to respond in a crisis or an emergency. Um, we're all getting back to kind of a new normal. And so we're thinking about being in our spaces in different ways. We're thinking about the people that we're around in different ways, I think. And so um, giving folks an opportunity and some of the tools to start thinking through how are they onboarding folks new to their, um, to their advice, uh, advising roles, um, or even just folks who've been in advising roles for a while, how are they prepared to um, handle some of those campus emergencies? Um, a second presentation is a partnership with John Sauter from Niagara University. John and I have worked very closely together over the past uh, six years or so um, in matters relating to technology. So in 2017, um, at the annual conference where the Nakata Court competencies were rolled out, we did a hot topic session um, introducing and kind of diving a little bit deeper into the technology competence area. 
And so we're we're reprising that. Um, it's almost the five year anniversary of the Nakata Core competencies, and so we're going to talk a little bit more about um, how how do you train on technology competence? What does that look like? How has that changed um, as technology has changed in the past five years? And um, more to come on that because we haven't honestly had very much time to touch base and plan that out. But um, I'm excited again for a continued collaboration with John because um, he and I work very well together where he has the big ideas, I can make them happen. And where I have like a narrow experience, he usually can flesh that out. So that's been great. Uh, and the last session that I'll be presenting is on how to write a conference proposal. Um, so I have not only over a decade of experience in presenting at Nakata conferences, mostly annual, but I also have read conference proposals um, since 2008. And so I have a lot of experience kind of seeing what I uh, have viewed as really strong proposals where people tend to kind of fall flat um, or just have some missteps in that proposal process. So we're going to demystify that, um, give an opportunity for anyone to contribute their ideas to those conference sessions um, and make them feel confident and equipped to submit, hopefully for the upcoming uh, regional conferences, and then also to see some of those at annual next year. Yeah, the conference proposal one, I mean, all of them sound very interesting, but I think that one in particular, I would have loved to have gone to when I first started as an advisor, because when I was going to the conferences, it was like, can I write one of these? And then it's, well, how do I write one? And that first one, right. writing that first one was like the toughest because I had nothing to go off of. <laughs> Absolutely. And I think that's the, the thing. You sit in some of these sessions and you're like, oh, you know, we're doing this cool thing. It might be about a totally different topic, but you start to think like, oh, wow, we're doing this too. I I could probably contribute something. I could talk about our program for 25, 30 minutes and then answer questions. Um, but getting over that fear of like, oh, no, what do I, what is an abstract? How should my abstract be different from my proposal? Do I have to provide resources? What does it mean when it's asking for um, for data? Like, and so you kind of can get into this whirlwind and then the timing, um, you have to submit. I mean, the call for proposals for annual conference opens in December, right after the annual conference has really just ended. And so the time to just think through and put your ideas on paper and decide should I tackle this topic solo? Could I put together a panel of people who might share different perspectives from different institutions? Um, I just hope to give people a, a a place to start thinking about that, creating some connections, um, and just continuing to to amplify the voices of a variety of people within our organization. And I think one of the the things, I mean, your your approach, I think, is fantastic in that, like, it's like, what are some of the areas that we that I, uh, you know, can really make a, a difference in helping others who where you are they're getting the the peek behind the curtain. Like once you demystify it, it become you know, it, it, it it's kind of like, oh, that's that's how it works. But until you get that, it, it is like the, the Wizard of Oz. You don't you don't know. And I know um, Matt mentioned in your, in your bio, one of your kind of current roles is around training and development um, for uh, advisors. I'm interested, I suppose, your your approach. Like, how do you begin to assess the the needs, and like, how how do you get, begin to set out how you're going to, you know, put those training programs together, Sarah? Sure. Um, so, honestly, initially, when I began in my role, um, I was 
the thought initially was that I would be developing a training, a series of training modules for advisors in the undecided and exploratory unit. That was kind of the unit I was still attached to. We'd had a series of turnovers in our undecided program. And um, because of that, it always takes a lot of time to onboard a new person. And depending on when someone is starting, you can't always be there 100% giving them face-to-face time. And so we were trying to figure out a way to balance the needs of the advisors who wanted to provide the in-person trainings, as well as just the fact that there's a lot of information to learn. Um, At a place like Ohio State, there's over 200 possible majors and you're learning the curriculum for all of those as an exploratory advisor, you have to understand the different nuances between colleges and departments, um, the different policies, the procedures, how things are done at different campuses, what is the campus change process? Like it just goes on and on. And so there were so many pieces of information where it's like, let's start to boil this down to what advisors need to know initially. And then we can start looking to see after they get through that initial training period, what can we provide kind of next? So um, most of what I'm doing with training right now is through our learning management system. Um, So they're asynchronous online modules. Um, Some of them are readings, some of them are videos. Um, There's a whole section on just introducing what is advising as far as Nakata is concerned, Um, the core competencies, the value statements, Um, thinking about FERPA. Um, Since we are a U.S. institution, we need to make sure that our advisors have a good understanding there. We dive into how do you develop rapport with students who may be different than you or have different experiences than you, especially when you're working within a 30-minute time frame of an advising appointment. Um, And then starting to develop just some handy resources or kind of a one-stop place where advisors can go when they're like, oh, how do I do that one transaction in our student information system that I only have to know about once every semester, but I forget where it is. So that's kind of where it all started. Um, And then as we've continued to onboard folks in a virtual environment over the past year and a half, um, more of those needs kind of come up in conversation. We have advising administrators contacting us saying, hey, could you provide a training about this, that, or the other? And so we usually try to add some asynchronous content in support of those in-person or um, kind of synchronous trainings. Um, So that's kind of how we've started. it's still kind of a pilot project um, to have this online kind of centralized training support. But the feedback that we've gotten, even from more seasoned advisors, they're like, oh, I wish we would have had something like this when I started. It would have been great to know that I could just go on to the learning management system and find all this information. Um, So we've gotten really positive feedback in that regard. And I think it also helps set the tone for just what we expect from the advising community at Ohio State, even though each of the colleges kind of have their own personality it's helpful to know that all you know 250 plus advisors and anybody that we're bringing on new really has this understanding of what is our mission and our vision of, through advising at Ohio State um, and how can they be the best professionals um, serving their students in the best way possible. Kind of goes back to utilizing the, the technology. I mean, you're able to do this over six campuses with over 250 advisors. And one of the other things that you're managing is to substitute float advisors for a pilot project. So what are full advisors? (laughs) (laughs) 
Sure. Um, so my boss, Amy Traboni, is just fantastic. I'll give her a shout out. Um, Dr. Amy Traboni, she just finished her EDD in the uh, spring. And so she had this idea several years ago. At Ohio State, when there are 250 plus advisors, there are vacancies pretty regularly. Um, people are on medical leave, perhaps um, family leave, or they've taken a new opportunity either at the institution or somewhere else. And anytime somebody is not in the office, there's a break in the service that's provided to those students, either that they have to wait longer to get in to see a different advisor who's filling in, or those advisors are taxed and you kind of get into that burnout situation because they're carrying two caseloads, for instance. And so Amy had this great idea. Could we create this team of advisors who are trained across all the institution? And she used to be the director of the exploration advising office. And so that was kind of her, her MO. Um, but could we create this team that was available to be deployed when needed to fill in these gaps? And so um, last fall, we got funding um, partly through the CARES Act um, and were able to move forward with actually implementing this project. So in November, we had four new um, folks hired to join our team and it has been fantastic, both from an institutional standpoint and also for them as professionals. Um, We've covered so many more appointments. Students don't have to wait as long when they are working with a unit that has a vacancy. And for these particular advisors, they're centrally trained. They know about all the majors at the institution, but then they also get to see kind of the day-to-day -day work for you know two to three months in some of these places that they're helping out. Um, our regional campuses do tend to be under-resourced, and um, particularly in this COVID year, there have been a lot of vacancies for advisor positions and a lot of retirements um, from our regional campuses. And so because everyone's virtual, it doesn't matter where in the state you're advising from or out of state in my case, um, but you can still have appointments with these students and help support um, these teams that really need some additional advising support. So overall, we're not quite a year in, but we'd say this pilot is um, definitely a success so far. Um, we'd love to continue to be able to fund these positions. Right now they're just funded for three years, um, but we're hoping to be able to extend that longer um, but really, at the end of the day, it's about that that continuity of service to our students, making sure that their needs can be met, um, that we can support the advisors across our institution, um, and we're giving a really great opportunity for other for our team to learn more about all these different places across campus. Yeah, it certainly sounds like a great pilot project, and potentially maybe this a, a, a new presentation uh, in a in a year or two's time. <laughs> That, yes, we've talked about that. Um, the One of the people that I directly supervise doesn't have a lot of uh, conference presentation experience. And so I'm like, hey, you know, this is something we could do. We could write this up and you could talk about your experience and how others could consider implementing something like this. So yeah, look for it coming up. <laughs> it, well, it would make a lot of sense. And um, perhaps th this question kind of maybe builds on that a little bit, but um, 
I suppose I'm just interested as somebody, you know, who has been working remotely um, for prior to the pandemic, then, you know, saw kind of what other people maybe learned. Now we're seeing people kind of transition back to, to campus somewhat. We're still obviously in that phase of a little bit of uncertainty. I'm just wondering, like, how you see, you know, you, you it's worked so well for you um, in terms of learn, like there are people out there that are kind of would would look like could would like to be in a position maybe or, or like to consider you know not going back to campus full-time or or taking a, a somewhat different approach just in terms of leave, leaving the pandemic aside and maybe the, the emergency and all that went on any insights you would offer to, to people just in terms of re- remote working when not in a pandemic sure um i will preface my answer by saying there was a lot of thought and reasoning behind once I knew that a position had been approved. <laughs> um, I We were very intentional, um, my spouse and I, about thinking about the life that we wanted to have when we moved. Um, when I lived in Columbus, I had a 30-minute commute both directions. We were worried about childcare pickups and drop-offs. Um, I was pregnant at the time that we moved, so we knew that we were adding an additional, a third child to our to our family. Um, we were going to be new in a community that is very well established, um, where a lot of people have grown up here their entire lives. Um, we ourselves were, you know, 700, 800 miles away from our immediate family support network. And so through a lot of reflection, I decided to kind of slow down a little bit in terms of my work. Do I like working full time? Absolutely. Am I passionate about supporting students and advisors? Absolutely. But for the sake of my family, for my own um, health, for our transitions, um, it just really was important for me to kind of slow that down a little bit. And so um, the opportunity to advocate for myself in that time and say, here's what would really be great if we can make this work um, and to move into a part-time position um, where I can still support the network that I've built over time, but also be here to support my family and um, to get my kids on and off the bus to, you know, have my, my almost three-year-old home with me um, during the days and take him to the park when I don't have meetings and things like that. All of that, um, wasn't something that I would have anticipated prior to kind of April of 2018 when this whole uh, thing was becoming more real. I think a lot of people during the pandemic also had similar realizations that cutting out really long commutes, that um, being able to spend more time with family, even if it meant that it just was a a FaceTime call or a phone call, um, those are the things that are really important in life, right? Like we could all, the institution is never going to care about its individuals as much as we care about the job that we have, right? And so we can do the best that we can in the roles that we have, but we also need to be our best selves in our own lives. (laughs) And so I think sometimes we advisors are really empathetic and caring people. And so we can experience secondary trauma from being so involved in our students' lives and being so connected to the work that we do. 
Um, that's part of what drew me to advising is that I could leave at, you know, five o'clock and I can leave student files on my desk locked or on my, you know, on my locked computer screen. Um, there weren't going to be any middle of the night kind of emergencies that I had to respond to off duty. Um, and I think we all just need to kind of think about how, how are we living our lives um, and what is what's going to work the best. I know a lot of places, 40 hours is still standard full-time work. Um, is there a way to, you know, be flexible with any of that? Can you have a day where you can work from home every once in a while? Um, if you have an appointment, rather than rushing back to the office, could you finish your day at your home office, for instance? Um, I think there's a lot of ways that we can support people to be their best authentic selves and not burn everybody out. Um, I think higher education in general is kind of coming to that reckoning point. I have a feeling after the pandemic, there will be a lot of turnover. Uh, just people are really tired. And uh, if we don't give people the time to heal and just be their best selves, then we can't support our, our students in the way that they need supported. I mean, I think there's a lot to unpackage with, with, with that answer. <laughs> I mean, for one, I, I think of the scene from Jerry Maguire where Jerry gets fired uh, from his the company he's working at. And then, you know, he's going to the elevator. And he's like, let's see how they do without us. Elevator doors close. And then the work keeps going. You know? Exactly. And, exactly. And I think, too, you know, like you're saying in terms of the pandemic, I think, yeah, a lot of people have rethought what am I doing? You know, and do I have this balance? Is this what I want to do? I mean, I've had colleagues that have left and left higher ed completely over this last year because, you know, they gave so much to it, but they're like, I need to close this chapter and go, go somewhere else and do something else. Mm -hmm. um, so yeah, a lot of changes I, I think are going to be happening. And, and I, I remember seeing a, a, a tweet you did uh, where you were writing about that um, in terms of how like, you know, you have the difference in the distance working options and that, you know, there could be that amount of advised professionals that leave because of burnout. And I think at, at you know, there's, there's one thing I read that said, you know, when we first start in a job, like we're, this job is an extension of us, you know, and we can still have like work, personal life, everything else we want to do. But at some point, we become an extension of the job. And then everything we do then revolves around the job. And then that's where you end up having that that burnout and like, I don't see any freedom <laughs> happening anytime soon. Yeah, I've been really lucky to have some very informal mentors or just even casual conversations with people. Um, I remember sitting next to Maureen Schaefer from the University of Iowa. Um, just we happened to get into a conversation and she mentioned, oh yeah, you know, I was a stay-at-home parent for a while. And then I returned full-time to higher ed and it was the best decision that I ever could have made. And I think the U S workforce really glorifies busyness <laughs> and like this thought that like you, you have to do everything a hundred percent. You can't do everything a hundred percent. There's going to be some balance issues. There's going to be, you know, burnout, there's going to be just tiredness, mental health concerns, etc. And sometimes you just need to be honest and authentic with yourself and say, like, this is not the right time for X, Y, or Z. Um, 
column you had mentioned, kind of the perseverance and applying again for um, the ELP program. I, if you talked with Ashley Thomas in the Nakata Executive Office, she would say the same thing about me as in my journey to becoming a, an author with Nakata. Um, and I applied for something, didn't get it. Applied again for something else, didn't get it. And then finally was given an opportunity to co-author a, a paper or a chapter for an upcoming book. Um, I think you have to know when is the right time to go towards something, when it's going to be beneficial to you or to um the field of advising or to your family or to anything that's really important to you. But I also think you need to know when to say no. So I've turned down some opportunities as well because it's just not the right time. That would add too much to my plate. It would put me out of balance. Um, and so um, even just those little conversations of people saying, oh yeah, like that was my journey. I've turned out okay. <laughs> um, you can still, you know, if you desire to be an administrator and advising, like that's still an op opportunity for you, even if you're not working 40 hours a week for the first 25 years of your career. Um, so I stay curious. I still am learning a lot of things um, and pursuing a lot of other professional opportunities, um, but I'm just doing it part-time and I feel more balanced for that right now. I think that's really important for people to hear. And I think that there that's the distinction between perseverance where you want something, but perseverance doesn't necessarily mean, you know, you say yes to to everything that comes along. It's about, you know, that intentionality and, and looking at it and, and seeing what's best for you. I think you put that really well in terms of looking at, you know, the, the, the holistic picture and, and what, what has to work for you, not just your institution. It, it has to, to work for you and, and your life. And I think, um, you know, there have been a lot of learnings in, in this chat. I think we could continue on and there'd be lots more to come. But for our listeners, Sarah, who, you know, um, want to, to learn more about you or interested in, uh, you know, getting in touch, is there a way that they can do that? Absolutely. Um, on Twitter, I'm Howard, S-J-H-O-W-A-R-D-S-J. Um, feel free to follow me, message me there. Um, you can find me on LinkedIn, happy to connect, um, Facebook. I know there's a whole bajillion Sarah Howards in the world, but um, <laughs> if you're connected with other Nakata people, I may be connected to them so you can find me there. Um, but yeah, I'd love to connect with anybody who wants to reach out. Um, I love having conversations with folks about, you know, advising and all sorts of other semi-related or non-related topics. So I'd be happy to connect with any listeners. Well, I think all that remains at this point is to say thank you uh, for offering so many wonderful insights today. Matt and I appreciate you taking the time to chat to us. Thanks again. I really appreciate it. It was fun. Thank you so much for joining us, Sarah. Your expertise in advising and professional development have not only provided growth to advisors at your institution, but to advising professionals globally. Before we get to Ebony's interview, let's hear from Dane Zanowski about the latest for Dane's Desk. Hello, Adventures in Advising podcast listeners. This is Dane coming to you from Dane's Desk, a new YouTube video series as part of the Adventures in Advising YouTube channel. I want to let you know about a couple of great videos that we have up. This past week, I was able to meet with Dr. Loxley Nibs, and he shares his advice on the importance of diversity, equity, and inclusion in advising. And then coming up in a couple of weeks, I meet with Ryan Sheckle, 
who talks about aspirational models and professional socialization. Great topic. Definitely check out that video to learn more about it. So again, this is Dane's Desk on the Adventures in Advising YouTube channel. Please feel free to subscribe to it, leave some comments on those videos, and also feel free to connect with me via LinkedIn or Facebook if you have ideas about other Dane's Desk topics or if you want to be a guest. And as always, keep advising. Thanks, Dane. Check out all episodes of Dane's Desk on our YouTube channel, Adventures in Advising. Now let's chat with one of the greatest people I know, Ebony Staten. Ebony Staten has walked in the privilege of supporting and advocating for students from the start of her career. Unlike many before her, Ms. Staten found herself in the higher education arena before being exposed to its possibility as a potential career path. During her early days as a college student on the campus of Cal State San Bernardino, her first supervisor gave her the opportunity to create and collaborate with other offices in the process of streamlining student transitions for the campus. It was that experience that has shaped her lens for involving students in the work of advocacy and the importance of partnership. Today, with over 13 years of experience in higher education and three years in education-focused nonprofit work, she remains passionate about student success and support with a lens toward continuous improvement for both her own professional skills and the work for which she's responsible. Ms. Staten endeavors to continue working towards student-centered solutions for the purpose of removing barriers and bolstering opportunities for all students through thoughtful collaboration and partnership development. This approach has allowed her to work with and lead student support teams on two university campuses, partner with the administration of multiple K through 12 school districts throughout Southern California, and today a worldwide nonprofit. Although Ms. Staten has acquired her master's in public administration at Cal State San Bernardino, today she works toward a second in psychological counseling with plans to commence summer 2022 from Cal Baptist University. In spite of all of her accomplishments, there is nothing she takes more pride in than her family. Her husband, Patrick, daughter, Naomi, and son, Nathan, are the driving force behind all that she does. Ebony, welcome to the podcast. Thank you. Happy to be here. Well, thank you for, for joining us, as Matt said, and we are delighted to have the opportunity to chat to you and a really fascinating bio that we're going to delve into. And I suppose to allow our listeners to get the opportunity to know you a little bit better, can you talk to us, I suppose, about your, your career in higher ed, your pathway to where you are now? Absolutely. I think for... For my story, I, I tend to lean more towards the, the student who was lost. So um, everyone else around me all knew exactly what they wanted to be when they grew up, right? In my case, I didn't have that one thing. And it wasn't until I was working at my first job on campus in the Office of Records, Registration, and Evaluations um, that I even received a taste of what that might look like. Um, and with that experience, there was a, uh, a welcome letter that students received after they were admitted to the university. And I asked my supervisor, B, um, and I text her just a little while ago, um, but I asked her, how do students know what to do after they get this letter? 
And she's like, oh, you know, they, they just register for classes. I said, yeah, but how do they know that? How do they know where to go, what to do and how to do it? And she, she looked at the letter and she looked at the packet. And I think Matt, I may have reached out to you to find out what that admission packet looked like. And with that, um, I was given the opportunity to say, to let's look at ways to ensure that things are clear for students. It's that that has been my process from day one, from working in reg registration to working as an advisor to working in student affairs. And even now, all of it has been focused in a lens towards how do we ensure that what we intend to do is actually being done and making sure that it's very clear for students how to navigate that process. Yeah, definitely. And, you know, I just, you know, we're talking beforehand before we started recording, just like how parallel our, you know, paths into getting into advising was like you working in the Office of Registrar, me working in admissions, working at the front counter to working in the back, you as an evaluator. Uh, now they're called transfer graduation counselors, me as an admissions evaluator, and then into the same office in advising and academic services. Mm -hmm. But, you know, flash forward to today, like you are now working at Career Village and you're the director of higher education and diversity initiatives. So tell us more about Career Village and your role as director and what that entails. So first to understand my role, Career Village was designed to ensure that all students have prof a professional network of support. So that regardless of where you are, regardless of your uh, your region, I'm going to say specifically region because we know that there are specific careers that are heavy in certain regions, um, that you can go online and you can go to careervillage.org. And if you have a question about a career path, there is someone on the other end with experience in that career path who will answer your question. With that by itself, it, it rings true to all that I've been focused on this whole time. And so then with my, my role as director of diversity or higher education and diversity initiatives, the focus is to ensure that not only are students hearing from those professionals abroad, but also hearing from the local supports that they have access to. So I'm partnering with um, higher education institutions mainly right now, HSIs and HBCUs, um, in order to ensure that students can still see the connection of the resources that are available available to them close by. And with the diversity initiatives, the reality is that our organization has served marginalized communities in large part um, in, I would say we are probably over 50% of our of our 5.5 million student users are, are students of color. Um, and so with that, that is definitely a passion that is a labor of love. And it is the opportunity for me to to walk out what I see as a as a big part of who I am. So I love it. Yeah, I think that you can hear that the passion about it in your voice. And what's really interesting is that connection back to what you were talking about, your first job and like the spark that that came from, well, how do students know and, and guiding and, and, and providing clarity. 
And maybe if we can yeah. take you back then to to working uh, as an advisor um, at, at CSUSB, can you talk to to me a little bit about you know you so it, you you had that first role in the Welcome Pack, but then you take a step into advising. Can you talk to me a little bit about that? <laughs> so. I, I would say I caught the advising bug, okay? And I say bug because it swallowed everything that and all of my time, all of my attention. I was obsessed with ensuring that students had a streamlined process, that they were well cared for, and that advisors had advocates on campus, not just the students in that space, but like understand what advisors do, the the gravity of our work. Um, and so it, it led me into several different conversations, several different spaces. It was through that that um, I started. I remember at one point I looked at our campus calendar and on the campus calendar it had advising week. And I started asking questions. Like, uh, so what do we do during advising week? And well, you know, it's on the calendar. We don't really do anything. We don't, do we? So it was at that point that I started talking to the folks in marketing. <laughs> I started talking to the folks, started talking to each of the deans, the chairs, other advisors. Hey, let's let's really utilize this as an opportunity for us to not only highlight the work that we do, but the importance for students to know that we're here we developed a whole big swath of programming around that. And I say we, yes, I, I may have started the, the bug, but there was no way that advising we could have been done without all of the advisors on campus. That, that was a ton of favors and will you please help me? And do you have uh, things to donate? I mean, it really was a labor of love for all of us, but we just needed that extra little something, you know? Um, there was also the uh, the peer advising. So I'll say that while the bug caught me with advising week, the peer advisor training um, happened by accident. Um, with, so uh, Kiana Wallace and I were asked to create the student success peer advisors, and we had like three months to design the program. And within that time, uh, we said, well, we're going to need to put together the training. And so we put together the training, and then we decided that we would open the training up to um, advisors and the mentors, uh, the, men the mentors office. And we did that a couple times. And then at the time, uh, Dr. Morales then made it a requirement for all of the campus peer advisors and mentors. That was all by accident. That wasn't intentional. So there were some things that were the bug and there were some other things that I kind of fell into. Um, but still a labor of love all the way. Yeah. And let me backtrack a little bit just to give listeners an idea of, of Ebony. Um, like Ebony talking about some of the initiatives that, that she was a part of. Um, which is just a small amount of actually what she ended up doing. And, and hopefully we, we might have to have a part two to talk about all of this. But originally when Ebony and I um, were working in our respective offices, we applied for the same advising position in advising academic services. And Ebony actually got it. I didn't. 
and when I found out I didn't get it, it was one of those like, oh, darn. But when I found out who got it, it was, oh, my God, that's like the best choice ever. <laughs> like, <laughs> Ebony's going to do something with that. And luckily, I got to another position, open up the office, and then I got it. And then we ended up working together. But one of the things I remember from you, Ebony, was as you would stay super late a lot because <laughs> you're trying to get everything done, but you still had time to kind of mentor me a little bit and be like, okay, what are you working on? Have you thought about this, this, and this? And I'm like, no, my gosh, never crossed my mind. Okay, let me start doing that. Um, <laughs> and it's just, you know, how, even though like it's a lot that you had to do a lot on your plate, you still had time for, for everyone else and to kind of just like make sure it was like this team environment and everyone got everything done. But kind of going into that, you know, you're a go-getter, you know, you're very much like if there's an issue, let's try to solve it. Or if there's, you know, advising week shows up on the calendar, what is that? Let's figure it out. For you, was buy-in an issue at all with, with trying to get these initiatives to to get off the ground or to make it its best self? Um, I'd say not even a little bit. And the reason why I say that is because I was blessed to work with, work alongside folks who I had worked alongside already for years. Um, there were the advisors in College of Natural Sciences, Social and Behavioral Sciences, Arts and Letters. These were folks similar to you and I who had been on the campus for some time and I had already had the opportunity to cultivate meaningful relationships within those spaces. So when all of this work came about, there was the, okay, I'm gonna ask a favor. I'm gonna need your help, can you? And there were definitely times when folks would say, Ebony, I'm doing this only because you're asking me if anybody else were to ask, I'm not doing a thing. <laughs> like, okay, I got it, but it's me and you all the way out, right? Like, let, let's roll. So the, the buy-in was more so, I would say, uh, for me, a very clear picture on the value of people, the value of partnership, the value of authenticity and relationship. Without those things, I wouldn't have been able to do all that I did in that space. All of the, the initiatives, I may have started the, the spark, but there were tons of hands in that pot. And I, I suppose building on that a, a little bit, like you can... I hear in, in the way Matt talks about you and the relationship, like how you connect with people and how you're willing to, to help people. And so I can understand why they were willing to buy in. But you have worked in a number of different organizations, a number of different roles, not everywhere where you've had the, maybe the time to build up. So I'm wondering, like, how to, how do you approach it for listeners? I suppose, you know, you are somebody who's a go getter. You are somebody who makes things happen for listeners who are wondering, like, how how can they go about it is there so is there something that that you would offer to them or about how, about your particular approach or how you go about if if you're looking to make change 100% i still say it's valuing people it is valuing the student experience it's valuing your neighbor's experience your colleague's experience and that when i say the value of authenticity when you authentically care about someone's well-being then you will take the time out to say you know what 
we have a whole lot on this agenda, but can we just take a minute and check in? You good? Cause I'm not, you gonna make it? Cause I'm just, I'm on a wing and a prayer right now. We gonna have to hold one another accountable. I, I, I strongly believe that there is absolutely no way that any one person can do anything on their own well. Yes, you can 100% start that process. Um, you can start some conversations. You can start a project, but to do it well, you've got to have folks that you can lean on and there's got to be folks who can lean on you. So the very first place I would say to start for any of us is to really check our motives, check our heart. Why are we there in the first place? And once you're very clear on your why, then you make it your responsibility in finding out other people's why. It's in that space that you have the opportunity to say, okay, well, I can help you with this and I, and I can see that you can help me with that. But it's always from a very authentic place of genuinely wanting to partner and connect. All right. And so listeners aren't going to be able to see this, but I have my camera off right now. And the reason is, Ebony, I have a special guest here to see you. Uh-oh. They, they heard we, that you're being interviewed and they said, can I, can I chat with Ebony just for a little bit? It's someone that works in our office, someone that you know very well, someone that you help mentor. We mentioned this person before we started recording. Can you guess who it is? Oh, John! Well, hi, Ebony. How are you doing? <laughs> hey, John. I'm great. How are you? Good. I am doing great. When I heard uh, about this uh, podcast, I was like, I got to stop by and say hi. It's been a while. <laughs> yes, it's so good to see you. Oh, wow. Nice to see you, too. I know. It's been a while. <laughs> so, so, John, what was, what was Ebony like as a supervisor for peer advising because you were a peer advisor for for ebony i i was yeah um I, i'd say uh just having having ebony as a uh, as our supervisor it was just it was a good experience to have because i mean so much experience with like uh with the university having a mentor as herself um and then i was just new to advising so i hadn't i didn't know like what to expect and she coordinated this whole program for peer advisors um it just so happens ebony that i was doing some cleanup the other day and i found the the peer advising manual that you created and i was looking through and i was like oh my gosh like there was so much in there that it, it's still i mean it's still it's still helpful until today so i um i mean just under your direction has always been helpful and i think that the peers can can share the same feeling that i do too Aww. Thanks. Colin, uh, so John's talking about this uh, this uh, training manual, this binder that that Ebony made. Guess how many pages this this training manual was? <laughs> the training manual for peer advising. Um, let Let's go. I I I feel like Ebony involved. It's it's probably it's probably reasonably reasonably sized. I'm gonna say thirty five page manual. Probably yeah, but double sided. <laughs> So there was um probably like seventy or eighty. <laughs> <laughs> I had to make sure you had all the resources. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> oh goodness! I told you, oh, I definitely God. caught the advising bug, one hundred percent. Well, I still have it, so I might ask for your autograph. <laughs> <laughs> but it was nice seeing you. I want to make sure here. 
Thank you so much. Yeah. Hope you guys are doing well. <laughs> All right. Yeah. That, what a what a what a lovely surprise to to see to watch listeners won't have seen, but like just to to see Ebony's face <laughs> when John was there, and earlier on when when Matt came on. So uh, clearly the the relationship between uh, the advisors at CSUSB is something special. Definitely is. 100%. Definitely agree. <laughs> Thank you, John. You're going to make my eyeballs sweat. <laughs> <laughs> this is when uh, we were hoping that the video we could actually record and then we can post that. <laughs> but yeah, I mean, you've definitely had an impact on, you know, various individuals. So me included, John, a lot of the other peers, other advisors on campus. But, you know, kind of going back to you being a go-getter and let's talk about technology is you had something to do with uh before they got bought out, bought out by EAB, bringing grades first. Uh, can you talk about how that kind of came about? Yes. So uh, <laughs> it started with really, remember back back during that time, there was the, the phrase, we need you to do more with less. And so back then I created with... Uh, Mauricio, I can't remember his last name, but he, his office was in the library, but he and I, he, he worked in distant learning. I think it was. And I went to him to ask if he could help put together, a, basically a landing page to create our sign in process. And it, it really was one. It was he and I putting together a series of hodgepodge systems to pre create a way for us to be able to track where are students coming from? Are they meeting with their advisor within their own college? Are they coming directly to us? Um, and us being able to kind of track that and report that at the end of the year. Through those conversations, we finally got to the point where like, we really need to actually have a tool that does this as opposed to our finagling. Um, and so it was at that time that I started researching tools. And with researching tools, um, I also invited those same advisors. Hey, y'all, I need I need everybody's eyes on this. I, I don't want to in any way assert any one program over another. So we had maybe five or six different companies come out and advisors and and chairs and deans from all over the campus were invited to come and and listen in on their presentation and it was grades first at the time that that rose to everyone's liking um, it was interesting that at the same time was when administration introduced eab and so it was an interesting dichotomy between both what was what was being advocated for and then also the needs from top down because there's a still legitimate needs right and finding a way for both of those to meet i left before the implementation but the the goal of having grades first was in order to ensure that we could utilize the data from student engagement to help us to build on the programming that was already in place and I suppose we, we've talked about, you know, you being a go-getter, we've talked about the way in which, you know, you maybe look to um, 
approach projects and, and help others go about that. Um, just again, kind of building on that, because you have led a num- number of teams, just interested in kind of your approach to, to leadership. Or is there what is is there a particular kind of somebody that, that really inspired you in relation to that? Or is it different things you've taken? Can you just talk to me, I suppose, about how you approach leading teams? Sure. So I will first, I won't sugarcoat, sugarcoat it. I'll say the very first time I led a team, I fell flat on my face. Um, and that was in my, I wasn't on the campus of Cal State San Bernardino at that point. And it was in that role, I think the first thing that, that most new leaders fall into is the feeling like you have to prove yourself, feeling like you have to be a certain person as opposed to being your authentic self. I 100% fell into that. I, um, and so I would say that my perspective on leadership now is one, don't do that again. Um, but two, <laughs> it's going back to who I am. It really is being centered in that space before everything else. Yes, there are questions to ask. And that is typically the first place I go is, why do we do this? And is are there opportunities in this space i think with being on more than one campus and being in nonprofit work it gave me the opportunity to see things through several lenses but that doesn't shift the importance of people that doesn't shift the importance of taking time out to to separate yourself and recognize the reason why you're there in the first place um so leadership for me has largely been Um, as a result of lessons learned from times I fell flat on my face, but also when you say, are there people that I look to now that would, that inspire me, I would say 100%. I take little bits and pieces from people all over the place. Um, They may never even know I exist, (laughs) but I am 100% gleaning from those insights because they've traveled this path before me and I'd be, it would be completely pious and, and ignorant at the same time for me to assume that I could do it in and of myself. And then of course, a whole lot of prayer. Let's just be real. Perfect, Perfectly said. And kind of reminds me of a, a quote from Darren LaCroix where he talks about when you make mistakes or, you know, you can learn from everything, every experience, but if you make a mistake, fall forward mm-hmm. because then when you get up, you see that you mm-hmm. still need progress. Mm-hmm. So now that we, you know, we have advising higher ed conferences that are throughout the year and Nakata has their annual conference mm-hmm. and, you know, hybrid one, if you will, that's coming up in October, but they have a virtual component, but we'll still have an in-person uh, component and conferences, you know, give us opportunities to network, opportunities to learn from others, attend great presentations. And that of course is speaking to the choir. I know, but in, in our survey that we sent to listeners, one uh, person asked about, you know, hey, a suggestion for a topic is how do you prepare for a conference or what do you do at a conference, you know, or get the most out of a conference? And when I think of that question, I think of you, because when we both attended the 2014 annual conference in Salt Lake City, Utah, like you were all over, like once you got there, you were so excited to get there. And I think made so many friends and connections in like an hour, you know, than I did the whole conference. <laughs> and 
you just seem to have all this energy throughout the whole time, which by the end, I'm usually drained. So I guess, you know, in 2014, if you want to think back to that point, you know, what kind of things were going through your mind in terms of, you know, how you got took, took the most, got the most out of the conference or tips that you can give to individuals? And I guess even how would that be different now for you? Okay. So I would say the very first place back in 2014 that I started in my prep for Nakata, first, I was super stoked to go. So I was going to be a grown up, y'all. I was going on a work conference. Like that was a big deal. Um, then beyond that, I had several projects on my plate at the time. So yes, there's the peer advisors, there's advising week, there was the four-year graduation pledge, at-risk advising, the campus-wide uh, peer advising uh, training. All of these, for me, were different lenses to approach the conference through. I had the opportunity to either choose one, which one lens do I want to focus on? Or are there multiple spaces in which I could uh, basically two birds with one stone kind of sessions, you know? Um, and that was in large part what I did. I went with the intention of improving upon my current processes. So that was my, my focus through the lens of all of my projects, how could I improve upon what I was already doing for all of them? Now, you asked, what might that look like now? So two kids later and six or seven years down the line and probably 15 pounds, <laughs> um, I might pace myself a little more. Um, but I still think that, um, I would take advantage of the face-to-face -face opportunities as much as I could because I enjoy the relationship building. At the same time, taking advantage of any of the online options that I can watch later on. So if I can schedule those at a later time and focus my time on that particular, or on a single lens, then I would do that. Um, but my goal was always continuous improvement looking for ways to make sure that not only was the process clear, but that I could prove it with data. I wanted to make it very clear that our students were being served well and that they were having the opportunity to develop um, and graduate before six years. Yeah, I, I think that commitment to continuous improvement, you, you can hear that in, in everything you've been talking about and even dispensing kind of time management advice there. And while you say you might pace yourself differently, you you're still remain committed to continuous improvement. I mean, you've take, you're taking on, you're currently studying for another master's. Um, and in clinical psychology, I suppose, um, just uh, our, uh, our listeners, I think, would be interested, I suppose, what inspired that and how are you finding uh, studying and, and working and, and juggling, you know, being being a parent, all, all of those things together? So first, I'll say um, I'm going to tell just a quick story and then tie it in. I was involved in a project that allowed me the opportunity to check in with those who I had worked with before, to ask them what would be a lesson you would teach Ebony um, uh, down the line or as a result of your time together. It was Matt 
Matt was one of the people that I reached out to for that project. And Matt's answer to me was that Ebony needs to be mindful of the fact that not everybody moves as quickly as she does, that she has to be patient with other um, other processes that are currently in, in place 100%. I am a uh, I am I'm not going to say I'm impatient. I'm going to say that I am working on my patience, but it is not something that I will ever pray about because I don't want the Lord to give me any more tests around patience. So <laughs> instead, what I will say is I am working on it. <laughs> As far as workload and navigating all of my lack of impatience and feel, or my lack of patience and feeling like everything needs to be done yesterday, um, I really couldn't say that I have a single answer as to how I've been able to um, juggle going to school full time, working full time, two small kids, and a whole husband. Um, I, I don't have an answer. And half the time I'm praying, trying to figure it out. Like, okay, now what do I do? Because I got somebody who won't sleep through the night. I've got another person who needs her hair done, but that's going to take me a while. Like all of the things, right? Um, <laughs> so I would say it's day by day. Like I there is no secret sauce, but there are people that that I do look to for inspiration. Like, okay, not a Pinterest mom. Let me start there. It's not a Pinterest mom. I'm not looking for the Pinterest moms because I am not at that level. Okay. But I am looking at folks like Bozema St. John. I'm looking at folks like Joanna Gaines. I'm looking at folks who have somehow figured out a way to manage their, their home life and their professional life with grace. But that's not a one answer kind of deal. <laughs> they get, uh, you know, people say day by day, but in this case, like minute by minute. Yes, one hundred percent, one hundred percent. Now, one of the things you mentioned earlier was was data, and when you were mm -hmm. at Cal State San you know, um, part of some of the initiatives that that you're part of, like peer advising was done through SSI or the Student Success Initiative fees, uh, which were fees that were student fees that were then allocated mm -hmm. to other departments that you had to apply for. But then you also had to submit reports and prove that, hey, if I'm using this money, that I'm actually doing something with it and it's the success of the student. Can you talk about mm -hmm. the student, student Success Initiative in the sense of like how you applied for it, but also how you measured that what you were doing was working and that because you had to keep reapplying for to get to get money each year. So with that, I remember bits and pieces. So I do remember with the peer advising, peer advising was funded completely through the SSI funds. And with that, it was the process of how many students did the peer advisor see within one quarter. It was also the research or the, the data that needed to accompany the training, right? So pre and post tests, how much did students know before they embarked upon our training program? Now, the first time I think we did, I want to say we did 20 hours. Um, and even then folks were looking at me like, Ebony, you gonna have these kids in here this long? Yes, they got to learn all the things, all the things. Um, 
And with that, it was pre and post tests. It was quizzes throughout. It was um, a cumulative exam, really looking to ensure that they not only understood the information, but they could apply the information. So that was for the training program. And then of course the numbers, how many people have gone through it, how many people have actually passed, because I wasn't passing everybody. Um, I was I was holding the line there. Um, the other one was for the actual meeting with students. It was numbered during the quarter. It was surveys from students and their experience with working with the, the student success peer advisors. Um, that largely also informed uh, what it looked like. Also, I want to say we did a, a serve or a comparison between the student's GPA um, and progression that went to see a peer advisor versus those who didn't. Um, and each time that information came back with uh, a glowing review or account of, of the program. So I, it's always one thing to say, yes, I love it and it's fun and we're doing all the things, but you know, you've, you've gotta be able to ensure that you have something to point back to, to say that it's a success particularly not, I wouldn't even say just dealing with money. I would say dealing with somebody else's life. Like the reality of advising is that well, we're dealing with the lives and the futures of, of other people. And so you want to have that data to say, yes, I am, um, I am moving in integrity and in all that I'm doing to ensure that, that these students come out well on the other side. Absolutely. And I think data becomes increasingly important in terms of decision makers and, and uh, the getting getting them on side on, on uh, different projects. And one of the things that I suppose is, is interesting, Ebony, is that you've worked at higher ed institutions and you've worked uh, for nonprofit organizations. Interested in like, are there significant differences between the the two sectors? Mm -hmm. uh, and 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 can you just talk a little bit around uh, maybe maybe that? Um, I honestly don't see huge differences. I think in any space you have the reality that some folks have been there for a really long time and you have the reality of the folks who are are there for a purpose you have the reality of those who are there just for an intended short period of time both of those exist or all of those exist in both places right um i think that the heart is that each of those starts out with the notion of wanting to do to to do well by the students both places you have that um, what i think is different is the speed at which it can happen and i know y'all know this better than most is that when you have a nonprofit and it's a smaller, smaller team of folks and you realize you're looking at the data and something looks a little, little wonky, we need to make some changes, those changes can be done within a week or less. You notice those same things on a higher institution's campus, those changes don't always happen as quickly unless you're the coordinator and you can make those changes. So I, I think size being one, I would also say funding is also one that has been a challenge for both. For most nonprofits, 
you know, we want to solve the world's problems. I'll fix all the things. Let's go, people. And you're surrounded by people who want to fix all the things. So I am in a space of all Ebony's. And it's great because all of us are looking for ways to, hey, how can I help you? You want to help me? And it's nonprofits left and right. Hey, I'll be your partner. Let's work this out. But when you're looking at the higher ed institution, you don't always see that. And I would say that it's easy to get to a place where, in, at least when I was in higher ed, it was easy to get to a place where you felt like there were times that it was an uphill battle. I haven't experienced that in the same way that I have in higher ed. I'm sure it's there. Let's just say that I'm sure it's there. And in both spaces, there will always be um uh, politics and all of that. All of that is still a thing. You can't run away from politics. It is in every corner. But I, I would, I would definitely say the, the uphill battle feel is one that's that's different in the nonprofit world than in higher ed. Yeah, it reminds me of Kenneth Blanchard's One Minute Manager book, where he essentially talks about there's like different types of employees, depending on you know, where they're at, like if they're new or seasoned, how knowledgeable they are, but how much energy that they have and how mm -hmm. motivated they are. And you can be really motivated, but not have that knowledge base because you're starting out. Mm -hmm. and you, have to, you have to build that foundation. But you might have people that are super knowledgeable, but aren't as motivated because they've been there for years mm -hmm. and they're just like, I don't have the energy anymore. <laughs> you know, I, I don't want to try as hard or do these initiatives. And then you kind of have the ones mm -hmm. that are in the middle that are have the knowledge and are mm -hmm. highly motivated and want to make things happen. But maybe they can't because they're not the coordinator. They can't make the decision, which can lead to a lot of frustration as well. One hundred percent. Lots of frustration. I would say. Even in, in, in my experience, I think what, what could always be done that I don't think we do well as people just in general is finding that balance between people. If you have a new person with tons of energy who wants to do all the things and you are the person who has been there forever with all of the knowledge that is the perfect Batman Robin scenario. But typically we're not seeking those folks out. Instead, it's I'll do it myself. And I fell victim to that also. The I'll do it all. Yes, I, I did reach out to other folks, but I still felt like I was carrying the weight that I didn't have to. So I would say in large part, finding connections like there's people like talk, have conversation, and we can find ways to to work it out. Absolutely, uh, you know, quarter quarterback needs a running back. Uh, yes, yes. And and I think uh, Ebony, there are going to be loads of people listening to this who you know love your energy, your enthusiasm, your knowledge, and will want to reach out to you to, you know, for further, you know, ideas or potential collaborations or partnerships, you know, um, yeah. are, are the, is there a way that people, a better way that people can get in touch with you? Is it email, LinkedIn? What, what's the best way for people to, to reach out? Sure. Um, folks can reach out to me through LinkedIn. Um, not a problem there, but also I would say the, the email I'm paying most attention to right now 
is my work email. <laughs> so if you wanted to send me an email, then that would be at ebony at careervillage.org. Ebony with a Y, E-B-O-N-Y. We don't do the I-E, the double E. It's E-B-O-N-Y. <laughs> well, I just want to thank you. This has been really interesting. I think we could continue this conversation uh, for the, the same amount of time again, and we'd still have plenty to talk about. So hopefully we can have you back in the future. I wish you continued success in your career. And thanks very much for joining myself and Matt today. Thank you both for having me. I've really enjoyed myself. Thank you. Ebony is definitely inspirational. I enjoyed hearing her thoughts on leadership and change management. And there were some lovely moments during that interview, hearing Matt and Ebony reminisce and also John's surprise appearance. That does it for this week's episode. Thank you as always for joining us and subscribe and leave a message on pretty much any podcast platform, Apple, Spotify, Stitcher, Google, you name it. Take care and keep advising. Don't